Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode is recorded on Sunday, August 8th, 2021. Good evening to you out there. I'm Greg from Philadelphia, your host for this evening's podcast. And today we're talking with our vaunted producer, Dan. What does hey, vaunted Dan. mean? Is that like pole vaulting or something like that? Uh, I, I, would, I would say you're on another level. Oh, wow. I guess um, I should just... Go to the Olympics then. Or <laughs> Actually, I'd have to take Wonder, a doctor Wonderful with me. stuff coming out of the Olympics, by the way. I've been, yeah. I've been hooked on watching Olympic highlights on YouTube. Oh, really? really? Okay. Amazing stuff. Yeah, I was glad to see Simone Biles um, at least you know get out there and, and um, get over what they call the twisties, I guess, and and and, and do a performance. That was, uh, that was pretty heartwarming to see. And it was also very heartwarming to me anyways to see how all the other athletes you know um backed her up you know like you know hey you know she's got some issues to deal with and um you know she needs support she needs her support and although well, it came out i believe she had a death in the family that, that was probably the root of oh okay of what was going on there you know yeah that's tough now, i don't want to go too too into it for because it's not it's beside the point as we talked about in the last episode mm-hmm. but um you know Certainly a very reasonable, rational explanation to me. Uh, I think it should hopefully give everyone that that was ragging on her for that pause and, mm-hmm. you know, it should reflect. But uh, I have a feeling they won't. <laughs> well, there are just some hard people in the world and <laughs> you just think you can't do too much about them. Yeah, but there, there's been some amazing stuff coming out too. Um, when you when you mentioned going to the Olympics, the first thing I thought of in the men's like pole vault or high jump, I think it's high jump, one where they don't use the pole but they still go over the bar. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, there were two finalists for the gold medal, and they, I don't know, I guess got to the point where it was so high they, I guess they couldn't go higher, mm-hmm. and they were both knocking over the bar. And I've never heard of such a thing, but apparently they were offered the opportunity to share the gold medal. Yeah. And they both agreed to do that. So yeah, they're that, like co-gold medalists. That seems really unusual. Has that ever happened before? That I mean, it's heartwarming too, in a sense. You know, they decided, you know, let's just, let's just call it even. But um, I'd yeah. never heard of it. Certainly, I don't think it's happened in Olympics that I've been alive for, unless I've Mm-hmm. It went totally under the radar, but so unusual, right? Yeah. And yeah. but what? But uh, you know what? A great show of sportsmanship and you know, yeah. kind of the spirit of the Olympics. There, I was yeah. very impressed. Yeah. Well, I'd be the last person to ask about the history of the Olympics. I'm pretty much the sports widow in this household here, so I, um, <laughs> I, I really I keep up with the highlights, and uh, but I I watch it. Uh, a lot of times because my wife has it on and she's, you know, cheering for certain people. And, I'm, and I, I hate it because I always disturb her saying, who is that? What are they doing? And I could tell it irritates her. It's like, look, you know, if you're not <laughs> going to be a true Olympic fan, you can't come in here and just disrupt me with all kinds of questions. My uh, fiance is somewhat like that. Apparently the Olympics was just never a big deal in her household. So mm-hmm. she just has no connection to it whatsoever. It was the total opposite on my end. My parents would sit down and they would watch the primetime Olympic broadcast almost wow. every night. Um, my mom in particular loved figure skating and speed skating and mm-hmm. all that, all those skating events really. 
She's just loved uh, watching the ice part of the Olympics. Oh, that's that's my wife's biggest one. She's from the Netherlands, and they always do really well in the speed skating competition. So uh, I'm pretty much forced to watch that part of the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what is our topic? Uh, what's, our, what's our first topic coming up today? Our first topic today is education. Oh. Uh, this is somewhat of a, a recurring issue. Uh, it kind of goes in and out of national headlines, but I, I think it's there a lot in terms of local politics. Mm-hmm. And that is vouchers. Yeah. So the idea of giving parents uh, some sum of money that they can use to, instead of sending their kid to public school, send them to the private or parochial school of their choice. Mm-hmm. Or, or charter schools, or any any non-public institution, right. and the proponents, I, I think, would frame it as you're just getting your tax money back so that you can apply it to whatever school you want your kid to go to, rather than be forced into the funding and your kid going to public school. Right. And if they don't want to do that, then you're essentially getting double charged. Yeah. Now the detractors would say. Well, you're you're taking money away from the public school system, and that's hurting every kid in that system. All right, All right. Now, Dan, I yeah. know you have some pretty strong feelings on this issue. Am I fairly representing the sides here? Yeah, I think you've kind of laid out the uh, the thirty thousand foot view, and I can honestly only go down to about twenty thousand feet in my perspective too. I mean, I'm just sort of recently getting into this issue. Um, Okay, I heard a dinging noise there. Are you still with us? Nope, never mind. <laughs> okay, I thought maybe the ramble detector already got me. But uh, no, I've, I've uh, since I moved back to Missouri from California several years ago, I've been dialing into the local politics here. And um, yeah, it's, it, it is an issue. It's an ongoing issue for quite some time. You know, the question is, do we as a society feel obligated to educate all of our students. And, you know, this goes all the way back to revolutionary times. Uh, My understanding is that um, uh, Jefferson and Adams were both big proponents of public education. Uh, They thought it would help preserve democracy. And I think as a country or as a nation, we have bought into this concept for ever since that point. And so a lot of schools at that point during, during revolutionary times were private, but uh, and a small percentage of them were, were public. But um, with the advo- with the uh, people advocating for public schools and public education and a st- and a single uh, standard by which to measure progress of students, we've all sort of gravitated toward the public school system. And now we're seeing it go the other direction. We're saying, well, you know, people are paying taxes for their kids to go to school, and uh, therefore they should have the benefit of using some of that tax money to pay for their kids to go to whatever school they choose for. And um, so for me, at least in my mind, initially on the outset, that kind of runs counter to the idea of, of the original idea of having public schools in the first place. You know, when a child is educated, um, he or she becomes a better member of society, and that benefits everybody. And indeed, you know, I my, I have one son, he's grown up, my wife has two children, they're grown up, um, so we don't support, you know, children directly anymore, yet we still contribute toward the public school system via our property taxes. And I don't mind, I mean, this is part of the price of democracy. So from, from the, you know, 20,000 foot view, I can see that this is somewhat um, counter to uh, American tradition, 
Um, and I think it's also somewhat, uh, somewhat, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not selfish, but somewhat self-centered to think, okay, I'm going to take care of my kids. I'm going to use public tax money to do it, to send my kid to a private school, which by the way, could be a parochial school too, which is, a, which would be religiously based. And, but, uh, some of the more extreme people, uh, that are fighting this trend are saying that this is actually just a grift by private industry who wants to educate children, uh, by, um, you know, taking money from pay, taking public money and creating a private industry out of it where they educate kids, but then they also, you know, support themselves as a private industry. Many of these schools, um, charter schools and so on are not regulated. So we're seeing, mm -hmm. uh, the trend, the trend toward the public, um, sponsoring private schools that are not under any sort of centralized control. So there's no control over the topics the kids are learning. There's no control over uh, whether or not these kids are sufficiently educated when they go back into the system. Uh, back in uh, the system, I mean, going into the workforce, I meant. Um, workforce or, you know, maybe they go to a, um, one of these schools for primary school, but then have to go to a public high school or yeah, even decide to go to college. Um, and it can vary wildly in terms of certifications. Like if you go to public school, of course, you'll get your high school diploma, as with most mm -hmm. Um, you know, Catholic schools, parochial schools will have that. Sure. But again, depending on the state, depending on the municipality, the verification of how rigorous the education is for some of these less regulated schools, it can vary pretty wildly. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. to the point where, um, I mean, my, a lot of my family is in education. Both of my parents are teachers. My fiance is trained to be a teacher. You know, there are kids that they'll, they run into a wall. You know, they didn't get the preparation that they needed for the level they're trying to go for. Mm -hmm. And they get to college or, or get to high school and they really struggle. Yeah. Yeah, actually, my dad is a case in point. You know, I hate to you know point my, to myself or my family as an example, but... Uh, my dad graduated from high school. Uh, he was kind of talked to or perhaps, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of screwed into going into a uh, seminary because uh, his parents and the parish all wanted him to be a priest, and he never wanted to be a priest. So he went to a seminary, graduates from a seminary um, probably around the year, well, probably somewhere around year 1950, 51, and he never wanted to be a priest, so now he tries to go to a technical school. He wanted to be an engineer. He couldn't get in. He, he was living in Milwaukee at the time, so he tried to get into Marquette University. They said, nope, you don't have the credentials. You know a lot about the Bible, but you don't know that much about math. And so he had to go to uh, Milwaukee Technical School uh, to get his credentials to then get into Marquette, which he eventually got into Marquette. But it's exactly what you're saying there. You know, he went to a parochial school, got his education, got his diploma, um, did all the normal high school things, you know, played on the football team and so on. But uh, when he got out, he didn't have the qualifications to get into the college of his choice and had to spend a couple of years uh, getting those credentials that he should have gotten in high school. So, yeah, these things are possible. And this, is, this has been going on because, you know, this, we're talking 1950s. So obviously this has been going on for quite some time in this country. Well, I think what it comes down to, 
this is sort of zooming out to the high level and thinking about the meta of, of what's going on here. I think this is often folks who feel like they have lost some kind of political struggle at the public education level. Mm -hmm. And rather than sort of just go with that, they're, they're bringing the next phase out. Okay, well, if I can't have my, if I can't have things my way in the public school system, I want to, you know, be able to pull my child out of it and take that money with me. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, they're, they're free to pull their child out of it now, but the state does not subsidize that decision. Right. Um, so this is sort of a sidestep, um, I think, for... And, and the battles are, are different in general. It could be a prayer in schools issue. It could be a certain way history is taught, certain way sex education is taught. This idea that, you know, my child isn't going to... is going to be exposed to ideas I don't agree with. Right. Um. And to prevent that, I want to homeschool them or shop around for a school that will teach them my worldview, essentially, or elements of my worldview. But right. <laughs> I want to use this also as a way to defund the government at the same time. I, or I can't do that feasibly with my budget. So I need yeah. a, a way for that to happen. And this is a way that that can potentially make that more feasible. Right. So that seems like where it's coming from to me. They feel like they're not going to be able to win on those issues. So they're kind of taking their ball. Yeah, and going somewhere else, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is, uh, and one of the arguments that, that I've heard from from that perspective was that, you know, they're not against having children going to public schools. They just want the money to follow the child, right? So in... Uh, for example, in Missouri, it's about six thousand uh, dollars per year per pupil uh, that the state kind of calculates uh, how much they will uh, fund the local schools for whatever school the child chooses for. So the money already follows the child in a sense. If the child goes to a public school, that public school's um, um, you know, population of students determines roughly how much money that that school is going to get. So people would say, well, what's the big deal? We're going to take that money now and then just go to a private school with it. And the child should go to the private school. And if the public school isn't doing a good enough job, then they need to do a better job. And I have two problems with that. Um, one is that um, already in, and again, I'm using Missouri as an example because I don't have time to research all the states. I'll just research the one that I live in. <laughs> But there's uh, approximately 120,000 students in Missouri that are already in private schools being subsidized only by their parents or perhaps by, you know, private donations or something. What they're asking for now is for that $6,000 to follow that child or to be with that child as they enter into the private school so the parents don't have to pay, you know, that $6,000 or, or at least get a break on $6,000 or whatever the child's tuition is. Now, the problem with that is the money's got to come from somewhere, right? That's money that the state is not already paying. So now they have to pay it. Um, well, where is it going to come from, right? So even though the money, yes, if we say yes, the money follows the child to the private school, the public schools are still going to suffer for it because that money's got to come from somewhere and they're not going to raise taxes, right? So they're just going to rob it from the I'm not saying they're going to. I don't have a crystal ball, but I'm saying the temptation is going to be pretty high to say, well, let's just take it out of the public school system to help. Well, it seems fund like a trial. natural conclusion, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's reasonable. And, and and so the second thing I have a problem with is um, uh, 
in, in not only Missouri, but a lot of states out there have fairly high rural populations. And so if you're living, you know, in the middle of, I don't know, Archie, Missouri or something like that, you know, I, I'm, I'm not too familiar with that, with that village, but um, how many private schools do they have a choice of? Especially if you live a little bit out of town, like you're living on a farm somewhere. Is a private school going to have a bus come by and pick you up? Is a private school going to, um, you know, provide a lunch or something? Is the private school um, even going to be available to you? And and the answer, I think, in, in virtually all cases is going to be no. So the people who are out in the rural areas don't have that choice. They say, well, the public school is really the only game in town that's, that's you know, has a bus service and reasonable, you know, cafeteria service for the, for the children. Um, they are not going to get, they are now going to get defunded because they don't have a, they don't have a choice. You know, so it really cuts a lot of people out of the system, in my opinion. And that's been my, my big, um, big grievance with, uh, with that idea of money following the student. I mean, theoretically, if it follows the student, you know, their school would get the same amount of funding if they didn't have any other options, theoretically. But I think there's a practical concern, which is, you know, there are, there are cost savings at scale. I think assuming every kid takes $6,000, and that's the end of it, is a bit of a simplistic right. view. You know, if you have a school building and there's five kids in it, well, that still takes the same amount to heat. Yeah, it may take yeah. the same amount to feed because it's cheaper to feed people in 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 bulk. You know, you, there's yeah. some savings there. Uh, you still have the one teacher. Maybe that teacher could teach 25 kids by themselves, theoretically, but you only got them teaching five. Yeah, it's still the same amount of money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there there's an element of losing some of the network effects of of a, of a public education system if more and more people are pulling out of it. Well, another... I see the appeal, though. I just think in practice it's negative for a few reasons. One, I don't think it's a savings to the country. If anything, you're now going to have to pay people to regulate all these schools that people are going to a little more closely because mm -hmm. now they have, to be, they have to be equivalent alternatives. In a, in a much more rigorous sense, or you're just throwing money away, really, and right. opens up the ability for parents to be scammed en masse in a way that they aren't now. I think it also, again, in the, the meta context of where we are, I think it opens up the temptation for uh, lobbying for homeschooling to be recipients of these vouchers as well. Mm -hmm. And then there's a... a very negative incentive for people to just go, oh, well, I'll homeschool my kid and I'll take this money for myself. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, you can just look at any social services system in any place in the country. And there are plenty of people who take money that's ostensibly for taking care of kids and just not using it to take care of kids, using it to take care of themselves. Right. Beer so that's money. just yeah. this problem magnified. Yeah. Yeah, then you, you talk about putting an organization in place to monitor the thing. Well, we've already got that. It's called your lo it's called your local school board. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's another thing we, that you know. If you talk about schools being a business, the thing I'm concerned also, and this has happened in St. Louis here, um, 15 times that I've been able to research over the last 15 years, um, where charter schools go out of business, and that's after taking a lot of the money. 
right from from the from the public funding they they take the money in some cases one or two cases the charter schools never even open their doors you know they got everything set up ready to go and then they ran out of money and see you guys we're leaving and so what happens to these kids you know they got to mm-hmm. get there's got to be some sort of fallback from right so the network is the public schools so now suddenly these kids come rushing back into public schools and then like you say you know maybe the infrastructure in the public school is not there anymore because they're now down to five kids you know, with one teacher teaching in the back of, you know, in a trailer somewhere, you know, because... Of, and let's say, let's say that infrastructure is there. If they come back in, do they have to pay another 6000 to the public school or is that then absorbed by the taxpayer? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's... Yeah, um, point. It's... Uh, a lot of people have framed this as part of a grift, that there is a, a large private industry out there that's looking at all this money that's being spent and I do mean a lot of money. I mean, with 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 uh, 120,000 kids in private school here in Missouri, and with a subsidy of of six thousand dollars per kid, um, I forgot what that works out to be. Is like about 750 million dollars or something like that. Um, that's a lot of money, and it's really tempting for private industries to look at that and start salivating and say, "Well, let's see if we can make this a a, a business." Which they probably can, which means that now you've got a businessman standing between the student and his teacher. And mm-hmm. that's to me, is never a good formula. The one element of it I do like, though, is encouraging or providing a competitive alternative to public schools to kind of encourage them to you know, be as good as they can be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, again, having a lot of family and education... It's it's not like they're choosing to be second fiddle to that Catholic school that you know or that charter school around the corner. No. It's it's some operational realities of having to take care of every kid no matter what their problems are, what their background is. Some of it is just budget. And then some of it is, you know, government bureaucracy, maybe some people in places that they shouldn't be. Yeah. Um but you know, you're going to run into a lot of those problems with private schools anyway. Yeah, I was just going to say, you, those. I'm not trying to equivocate either because I hate it when people do that, but here I am. Um, you're going to run into those issues anyways. And over the, over the last couple of centuries, we've set up school boards precisely for this reason. So if your local school board isn't doing, you know, what you want it to do, um, you can go there and ask them to change things, right? Or you can scream it, as people have been doing recently with critical race theory. Um, but either way, you, you do have an avenue. Parents do have an avenue to make their voice, uh, their, their concerned voices heard. And that's supposed to be a good thing. That's supposed to be what democracy is all about. So, um yeah, I just there's one more thing too that that um, um, our former chair of the Alliance Party, Jim Rex, asked us to to present here, and um, I've been aware of this as well that uh, many of the state legislatures have been um, prohibiting prohibiting uh, children or prohibiting I should say school districts in colleges, uh, public school districts and colleges, from mandating uh, masks for COVID mitigation. And this has uh, been taking place in Florida, South Carolina, Texas, and most famously now Arkansas with Asa Hutchinson, the uh, governor of Arkansas, publicly admitting he made a mistake by writing this, by by signing on to this law that says, you know, we we will make sure that no public schools in our state will mandate masks. 
now he's reversing course. And first of all, that's probably going to get him kicked out of the Republican Party because he's actually being honest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was unfair. Sorry about that. Um, well, you're, yeah. you're probably not wrong, actually, <laughs> uh, given the current climate of the Republican Party. But I'm, I was just so shocked. I've never seen a prominent politician like that reverse their public position and apologize for it. Yeah. It certainly yeah. hasn't happened in the last eight years, 12 years. It's kind of refreshing in a sense because, you know, it, it everybody knows things change, right? Conditions change. And this is exactly what uh, Governor Hutchinson's point was that, you know, hey, when I signed this law, conditions were different. You know, we were, uh, COVID was on its way out. We want, you know, the school year's getting ready to start. Um, you know, he thought it was good. I, I believe he's, he's, he's genuine in his concerns there. Um, but the conditions changed, right? And so he, I saw him, I think it was on, Oh, I think it was on Meet the Press this morning. He talked about, uh, well, it could have been Face the Nation too, but either way, he talked about the fact that conditions change and good leaders will change direction if the facts on the ground change. And um, it's really refreshing to hear a politician say that, much less a, or much more a, uh, a Republican politician in, in our climate where we're you know, admitting a mistake is almost uh, suicide in a sense. Yeah. And you can look for the exact opposite of this and, and him being lionized in the Republican Party and then be Governor DeSantis of Florida, mm-hmm. who is doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on anti-mask, anti-vaccine positions. And, uh, yeah. you know, he's getting a lot of a lot of public credit for it from leaders of the party. Well, and it, from the rank and file, frankly. He's actually, my understanding, though, is, is and this kind of dovetails into our next topic, right? Which is, or what, what was our next topic we were going to talk about? Um, oh, yeah. The Republicans starting to change their tune on, on COVID vaccines. At least that's what I have scribbled down here. Um, <laughs> I was kind of surprised. Apparently, DeSantis has um, not reversed course on mask mandates and social distancing, but he, he is now starting to advocate for vaccines. So we're seeing this sort of shift in the Republican Party. I think that they're beginning to see some reality out there that, hey, you know, this uh, this Delta variant is um, is really um, targeting the people who are not vaccinated. And the people who are largely not vaccinated are, um, if you just look at the, at the states themselves, the fully vaccinated people, um, how does the statistic read here? I don't want to read this wrong, but apparently... The states that have 70% uh, vaccination rates are generally uh, re, uh, generally uh, states that vote toward uh, Democratic um, uh, officials, uh, Biden states, in other words, and 40% of the Republican, 40% of the uh, of the uh, Republican states, uh, 40% of the people are fully vaccinated in largely Republican states. I hope I got that right, but the point well, I was trying to track. make there's a disparity there. Yeah, I mean you wouldn't think this kind of thing would have a political disparity, but you have to keep in mind and listeners would have to keep in mind. This has been made to be a political issue. Um, yeah. Largely by the former president and his party has followed suit that, you know, frankly, Republicans, Republican leadership, Republican lawmakers, prominent conservative influencers and thinkers were pushing quite hard for people not to mask up, not to take the vaccine Mm-hmm. Not to take COVID seriously in general, uh, and you know there was 
it, it was just an interesting evolution of how the virus spread. It started on the coast for the most part, started in cities, mm-hmm. and it spread inward into rural areas much later. And yeah. I think that largely informed their approach. And now we have a situation where it's it's saturated the country at this point. Mm-hmm. And one political party has been consistent, consistently telling people to take it seriously, to wear masks, to distance, take the vaccine when it comes out, uh, sort of gone above and beyond to promote it and fund it and say, hey, this is safe. Please take it. And you've had the opposition party doing the opposite. Yeah. Uh, so it's it shouldn't be shocking at this point that there is such a big gap between um, left-leaning and right-leaning groups among their vaccination rates. But it is having some interesting consequences as you know, we're seeing a lot of headlines now in various news outlets of um, you know people who have been very vaccine-resistant, vaccine-hesitant, getting COVID, becoming seriously ill, sometimes dying, and in their, at the height of their illness, being, you know, very regretful that they didn't, and encouraging their friends and family to take it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's hard. I mean, there's, there's a a facts on the ground element of it that is really hard to ignore, which, and some people are still ignoring it, and, you know, God bless. Well, when your friends and family start dying, it's very hard to not take it seriously. Yeah, and in one of the articles I read, uh, I think it was in um, the Guardian. I read so many articles, I forget where they're at. And I, but uh, I believe it was in the Guardian where they talk about this phenomenon that that even though prominent um, Republican uh, party members as well as uh, as conservative media personalities. You know, like Sean Hannity, for example, or, or Governor Kay Ivey in uh, in Alabama, I believe is where she's from. Um, they're advocating for vaccines now, but but people still resist it. And the the article was basically coming to the conclusion that they have fostered so much mistrust in public officials, politicians, basically, that they won't even believe it when Trump says, you know, hey, take the vaccine, which he. Don't, don't think he said it yet, but he did take the vaccine. But even when you know prominent uh, Republican officials, um, even Mitch McConnell, who has never advocated against the vaccine, he's always been pro-vaccine. But even they are now uh, they have wrung out so much of the trust from politicians and government in general that people are now um, mistrustful that they they don't even trust the people that are telling them not to trust them. It's, it's it's a bizarre situation, and it's tragic too. We had um, a local politician in Missouri here, Sarah Walsh, who's going to run for one of the uh, congressional district seats in Central Missouri, um, and she's also uh, she's a, re- a representative in the state house. Um, she notoriously had avoided the vaccine, she and her husband, and her husband is actually um, the political spokesperson for the existing uh, person who occupies the U.S. congressional seat. Um, She and her husband just recently, over the last few days, came down with with the coronavirus. She's at home convalescing. She can't be with her husband because he is now in the hospital on a ventilator. Oh, and wow. yeah, and, and you know, she's she's online asking for prayers and things like that, and then saying she's being very humbled by this whole thing. 
and uh, yeah, gosh, I, I sure hope her husband, you know, pulls through this thing. I really, you know, I really feel for them. But it's almost like, you know, in a sense, like, why is it now humbling you? Why wasn't it humbling you before when people really were suffering just like you are right now? You know, and I don't want to be like, you know, the, if her husband, you know, the fact that he's very sick, I don't want to be the one to, you know, just asking these questions. But I do have to say, say the quiet part out loud for the benefit of other politicians out there. Like, don't wait for it to hit your own home. Don't wait for it yeah. to hit your loved one before you get proactive about this thing and, and, and put, set aside all this uh, nonsense, the anti-vaccine nonsense, and get your people to get vaccinated. Yeah, what's more important, winning a political argument that is really made up out of thin air or protecting your friends and family? Yeah. You know, protecting your loved one, your kids. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's hard, you know, and, and, and the Missouri legislature, uh, they ha I don't think they've passed the law yet, which bans uh, masks in schools. But I know that uh, Florida and South Carolina and Texas have have done it. Um, this, I think, very rapidly is they're going to find themselves on the wrong side of this issue as the um, as the as the numbers keep piling up. You know the. The, uh, the numbers of people infected keep piling up uh, pretty soon. The, the narrative is going to turn against these people. And I think the forward-thinking individuals, as much as I still disagree with these guys like Sean Hannity, um, I think they see that, you know, and it's like, hey, we can't, we can't keep this up. You know, we have to turn this thing around. It's a shame it took, what is it, over a year now of hardship for them to get to that point. Yeah, and, and how many you know how many people died and uh, all the wars up Hundreds to this point? Hundreds of thousands. Yeah. You have to imagine. Yeah, more than all the wars we've ever we've ever fought up to this point. You know, and here's this war that's taken this many people in less than two years, and uh, we're kind of turning a blind eye to it. It's mm -hmm. mystifies me to no end, but um, it's going to probably mystify people for the next hundred years. Well, speaking of turning a blind eye to something we're going to regret in 100 years, uh, we do have some updates on global warming. Oh, yeah. Fires? We've seen a lot of extreme weather recently. We've seen a lot of um, uh, human displacement related to them and related oh. to sort of larger trends as well. Yep. And yep. this is something where we just don't see a lot of, uh, certainly here in the States, a lot of proactive action Yeah. or even reactive action. It's not much going on in general. Well, it's been compared to as a slow tsunami, you know, as far as ocean rising is concerned. Yes, there's a tsunami coming in, and but it's going to take a few decades to get here. But I was interested in an article, again, going back to uh, the uh, uh, the Guardian. You might think that's the only newspaper I read, but that's not true. Uh, but there was an article in the Guardian recently which caught my attention um, the, of, of displacement already starting in Miami. And I think the reason why it caught my attention was because I was reading about Miami because of this, this collapse of the, of the, of the condominium towers there, a tragic situation. But I started looking at the geography of the place and I didn't realize that there's this barrier island. Uh, now, first of all, I'll say I've never been to Miami. I've been to a lot of U.S. cities. For some reason, I never got to Miami. But um, there's this barrier island out there where this, where this, um, where this tower collapse took place 
and it's a very low-lying area, right? It's a barrier island, so you know you, you'd be lucky if you're like five feet above sea level in that in that area. Well, what's happening is that people are beginning to realize with all these storms and all these storm surges coming through, and the um, this coming slow slow motion tsunami I talked about. Uh, real estate value in the barrier island and all the beachfront properties in Miami proper are uh, starting to go down in value. And what's going up in value? Well, the places further inland that are higher in elevation. Well, that wasn't a prime place before, apparently. There's this place called Little Haiti, which uh, is about 11 feet above sea level. And Haitian people have been settling there for several decades now. Uh, starting back in, I believe, the 1960s, and they've established their own little community there. Um, they are being bombarded by real estate agents who are trying to, um, uh, to put it nicely, trying to offer these people a good opportunity. To put it not so nicely is they're hounding these people, calling them up all hours of the day, pounding on their doors. They want that real estate because they know that all the people coming off the beachfront property who are tired of being flooded out every year are looking for higher ground. And so now we're seeing gentrification uh, starting. And you have, you have this nice little community that has thrived all these years and ha- has their own personality now. And now they're under threat from um, you know, gentrification. And you know, landlords are raising their rents. Uh, real estate prices going up, and at some point, you know, people are going to start moving out because, hey, I got a good deal, I'm out, right? Or, or maybe they're being forced out. You know, who knows? Um, this is a, this is already the beginning of what I would call um, um, climate, uh, climate enforced uh, migration. I guess you're calling it, or global warming uh, forced migration. It's not a migration like people like streaming out of Syria or something like that, running for more, but it is a slow motion migration, which is starting now we're seeing the beginnings of it and it's going to continue i think it's definitely going to continue um we didn't talk about it much on the show but the extreme flooding that has been seen in europe and belgium and germany recently Mm -hmm. oh my god yeah (laughs) i mean i i've seen scenes like that like in like the central parts of america when we have floods or when a, a dam or a dike breaks Right. You'll see some scenes like that or you know it look like the aftermath of a tsunami where there's just stuff everywhere water damage constantly but it wasn't in any place where you'd normally see that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's where I think yeah. we're going to see a lot more scenes like that with places that aren't normally known for having flooding or extreme weather but suddenly it's going to start happening and start happening more and more frequently. Well, I'm very tuned into that in Europe because, I, as I mentioned before, my wife is from the Netherlands. Um, now they're being low, lowlands. Um, much of that country lies below sea level. And the only way they can control the, the flooding is to literally pump that water out. And the problem is when you pump water out of soil, the soil dries out and it sinks even more. <laughs> and the Dutch have been tuned into this for centuries now. They've, 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 come, they've, come, they've got this thing perfected. But uh, there's tremendous amount of concern there, and I've been on many of those dikes there already. Uh, it, there's a tremendous amount of concern there that you know, as the sea level rises and as uh, more violent storms come in, uh, they literally have to pump the water out. You know, when you have a big you know downpour of, of a thunderstorm or something, uh, you know, here it just runs off the streets, right? And you don't think about it unless you're living in a low-lying area. But there, they have to think about it because there's nowhere else for it to go unless they pump it out. Mm-hmm. So. 
um, yeah, it, it, it's going to be a, a battle, a Herculean battle against nature to keep that country alive. So, yeah, when I see stuff like this happening in Germany and, and Belgium, uh, Belgium, you know, both of them border the Netherlands. Um, yeah, I'm getting extremely concerned about this. Uh, I have a lot of family over there. They literally lie, I believe. Um, they said 10 meters below sea level. I don't think it's quite that deep, but it's uh, they're up there. If the if the you know if the classic dike breaks, you know if there's no kid around to stick his finger in the dike, I guess. <laughs> right. Which, by the way, is an American story. I found that out recently. But um, if there's you know if if, a, if well they have series of, of of dikes there, so it would take you know there's redundancy built into it. But and the bottom line though is that. Um, you live under that threat every day there. Yeah, my uh, I game with a lot of Europeans, and uh, one of my one of my good friends had to basically drop from the internet for a couple of weeks to take care of his grandmother who had been displaced by the flooding. Mm. Um, wow. Her and a lot of her neighbors just what did, they lost what, a lot. What did, know, they they got happens. completely flooded out. I don't think she got completely flooded out, but there was a lot of damage. And hmm. I think she at least had to temporarily relocate from her house, but it's not, it was salvageable. In other words, yeah. I think a lot of her neighbors weren't so lucky. Wow. And so, you, you know, you preface this whole conversation with uh, things that we're kind of ignoring, right? Um, and it's now showing up on our doorstep and, you know, it's getting bad. Yeah. And it, you can just, only yeah. put it off for so long. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we need politicians who are going to be able to look beyond partisanship and think about the long-term health and safety of this country and go, look, we need to we need to find a way to work together or if we're not going to find a way to work together, we need to find a way to do something about this yeah. with whatever coalition we can build. Because some of these issues are existential. They're transcending our usual politics and oh, we yeah. don't face them you know, it's a pretty dark future for the country. I think we're seeing that with COVID now. And I think there's a reasonable expectation that climate change may go the same way. Yeah. Well, I think we're, we're just, we're trapped in this cycle where, and it's, it's, I'm not going to pin it on particular politicians. I'm going to pin it on humanity. Um, you know, especially with, with slow moving disasters. Um, yeah, we're, we'll work on it tomorrow. Right. Uh, we'll put it off till tomorrow. Well, we, we don't have the money today. It's more important to do, you know, something else with the money today, build a football field or something like that. Um, so in a sense, especially like in democracies, which have a really tough time uh, controlling long-term goals, that's, that's why democracies don't fight long-term wars very well, because it's really hard to keep all these loose elements uh, focused and coordinated on, on one goal. And uh, it's the nature of democracy. It's the nature of human beings. So I, I'm not sure what it's going to take, honestly, to uh, is it going to take one disaster after another to get people to wake up and and start doing something? I, I think mitigating CO2 emissions is the long term goal. But in the short term, uh, for the next 50 to 100 years, um, there's going to be a lot of climate motivated migration going on. And we've got to figure out some way of handling the damage that we've already done. Absolutely. An ongoing conversation, and we will, I'm sure, touch on this topic quite a bit over the course of the coming year. Oh, yeah. It's one of many topics. 
Yes, but this is one, this is a big one. This is a real big one. It's affecting a lot of people. So, All right, everybody. Um, Thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our coming episodes. We'll touch on climate change, corona, and much, much more. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party perspective. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to get involved in the Alliance Party, we could sure use you. Please see our website at www.theallianceparty.com. As we expand, we need your involvement. Democracy is not spectator sport. Donations and volunteers are always welcome. If you would like to contact us here at the Alliance Party after dark, drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. And also check out our Twitter page, at Alliance on Air. All content for this podcast is copyrighted the Alliance Party. However, the views expressed in the show do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. I'm Greg for Philly, joined by Dan. We are your hosts for this evening's edition of the Alliance Party After Dark. And on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, please take care of yourselves and those around you.